0: Hello, welcome to TESOL POP. My name is Laura and joining me today to talk about cognitive load in ELT is teacher trainer and author David Weller. Dave has over 17 years of experience teaching, managing and training in the TESOL industry. He regularly posts blogs on his website Barefoot TEFL Teacher and is the author of Lesson Planning for Language Teachers. Dave, thank you very much for coming onto the show and welcome.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So for cognitive load, I thought we could focus on three key questions. Uh, the first being, what is cognitive load? I think it's important that we define it to start off with. Secondly, what are the three types of cognitive load? And finally, how can we reduce this in our classes as teachers? Does that sound good?
1: Sounds great.
0: All right, so let's tackle the first question. Dave, in layman terms, how would you define cognitive load?
1: that's a good question it sounds really complicated but it's actually quite simple Um, cognitive load theory really explains how we process and remember information Um, so cognitive load if if it's too high really you're overwhelming your students with too much information Um, and of course as teachers looking at that should really inform the teaching decisions that we make as it can really you know affect the students learning outcomes
0: what are the signs to look out for in the classroom then, if, if students seem like they're overloaded?
1: Um, <laughs> a very confused look. Uh, maybe they're <laughs> muttering to themselves about you know, and kind of talking off topic, um, not being engaged or interested. Mm-hmm. And maybe if for the other for the younger learners, um, you know, maybe misbehavior or you know, not not focusing on what you want them to focus. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned there are three different types of cognitive load. Uh, Could you just define what each of those are?
1: Sure. So the first one, um, all this comes from a gentleman called John Sweller, who was doing some research into problem solving back in the eighties. And he was building um, on work prior to his, uh, but he's the one that came up with these, with these terms. So the first one he defined as intrinsic cognitive load. Now this one Again, these, all these terms sound very complicated, but they really are not that. They're quite simple when you look behind them. So intrinsic cognitive load is how complicated the topic or the task is. Um, so for example, in maths, calculus would be um, infinitely more difficult than simple addition. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and you know, in language, most of us would agree that teaching or grasping the present simple is much simpler than teaching the third conditional or pluperfect subjunctive or, you know, something like that. Um, So in that case, we would say the intrinsic load is higher in these tasks because the complexity is much higher. Mm -hmm. So I guess for this one, if we were looking at um, how this applies in the classroom, you'll be in the lesson planning stage where you're selecting material to use for your learners. You know, make sure you're picking tasks that are at the right level, are things that they need. Um, Maybe if you're you know, choosing things like crashing, might say I plus one kind of tasks or activities, or if you're scaffolding, it might be like the zone of proximal development as, you know, where the the, the things that the students can do with support from the teacher to challenge them and to improve or increase their learning rather than things which either have a too low of a cognitive load and things they can do already or too high of a cognitive load where they would just simply have no chance of learning it because it's way beyond what they're currently able to do.
0: Intrinsic cognitive load is the first area that John Sweller defines what about the other two?
1: The second one is called extraneous cognitive load so again it has a fancy term but really this just means extra information that distracts from the key learning information that you want to get across to learners so in the classroom this could look like too much information uh, ambiguous or confusing information, or just simply unnecessary extra information. I would say normally in the classroom, this happens in two key areas. The first one would be in materials. So, this could be your course book or worksheets with overly complex or badly designed materials. The second area that this happens in would be teacher talk. So, if a teacher doesn't grade their language particularly well, or speaks too fast, or using complex terms that the students don't know yet. Um, it could even be a, perhaps a noisy environment as well with too many things happening, um, interruptions, you know, people walking in, disturbing the class, all these things, uh, you know, in, really when we're talking about processing in the brain, count as input, and again too much input or unnecessary input will still distract and try and fill up that working memory and you know almost like meter blinking until it gets too much and then there's overload and the students struggle to retain anything else.
0: That's really interesting. I think an example of this then is when I observe a teacher giving instructions for a task and they tend to jump ahead of themselves. So they talk about the task that they, the students immediately need to do like the preparation and then what they're going to do is step three and step four step five following the task and the learners get quite overwhelmed by that. Is that an example of extraneous uh overload cognitive overload
1: it would be yes exactly so it might be a very simple task so it ticks the box for intrinsic cognitive load but maybe there are several stages to doing it as you say so and instead of separating out those stages they lump them all together okay okay so first you're going to get into pairs and then you're going to work together and after that you'll do this together and then you'll come together back to this we'll come back as a group share and then go back and do and by then you can just see the students (laughs) yeah
0: so we've talked about intrinsic extraneous and
1: what's the third one then the last one has an even stranger name it's called germane cognitive load so germane Cognitive Load looks at how easy it is for students to link their current knowledge to the new information that you're presenting. This is, really takes place when the brain starts to encode the information into the long-term memory because it's looking for where to place it in the map of knowledge or the web of information that's in your brain. And so if the information that you're presenting to students is so far beyond what they know already, that there's nowhere to kind of hook it into, then it becomes very difficult for the students to process that. It's like, like, think about it. Like, um, if you don't have a context, you know, decontextualized information is hard to remember, because it doesn't have any links where, and this is what your main cognitive load is looking at.
0: So as teachers, um, how can we go about then reducing cognitive load?
1: So for this one, I mean, that's a really good question because, you know, this is um, you know cognitive load theory is looking at information and how it's processed in the brain. And, you know, the, originally it was just done in isolation. So as teachers, we need to take that theory, adapt it to how we interact with our students to make sure they can you know, get the best learning outcomes possible. So I think somebody actually looked at this um, a little while ago in the early 2000s, a gentleman called Richard Meyer and he established five principles of how to reduce cognitive load in the classroom. I'd like to share maybe quickly whiz through those with you, Laura, and kind of add some of my own kind of tips that I've noticed as well. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> um, good. So the first one is coherence, the coherence principle, and that's really just reducing the amount of information to only what's necessary you know, keep things simple and clear and focus on on clarity over style. Um, and I think We've already mentioned about materials, uh, you know, be overly complex or unambiguous, or, or ambiguous rather, and making them unambiguous, and teacher talk, uh, for example, giving instructions. Now, another area that this relates to, I think, is differentiation. So, the more you know your students being able to set slightly different goals for them, or, you know, maybe provide a slightly more support in some tasks or even set more challenging goals for the students that are slightly ahead in a particular area for a particular task. So that's how we would adapt that principle for the classroom. Mm -hmm. The second one uh, would be, he called the signalling principle, which is make sure to highlight important information, draw attention to key points that you want to know, and that applies to both you know, spoken and written information. So obviously, if you're using a, an interactive whiteboard or something like that, or a worksheet, make sure you somehow highlight the key information. And when, when speaking as well in the classroom, don't just speak in a monotone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, use dramatic pauses or gestures or something to kind of make sure that students take in key or essential information. The redundancy principle, which is, you know, don't try and do... more than one thing at the same time. So if you have um, a slide on an interactive whiteboard, for example, where you hand out a worksheet, don't then talk over the top of it, giving different information. Allow some processing time. This is almost as bad as just reading out your PowerPoint slides, which is everyone's pet hate. Don't just, if you have a screen or a worksheet with lots of information after you've handed them, allow your students some processing time. Don't just talk over it and give them you know extra information while they're trying to handle that first set of information.
0: Mm, That's a really good point. I see that happening when there's a lot of um, listening or reading tasks and the teachers give out the reading for detail or listening for detail and they expect the learners to read through those questions or read through those true and false statements and listen at the same time to answer the, the, the questions and it's just so overwhelming for them because they're having to process what the what they're actually listening for while actually listening to the audio while reading the text at the same time
1: exactly yeah there's no wonder they uh, you know hit their working memory limit very quickly when that happens yeah uh, i totally agree another example i see a lot is especially for, for newer teachers perhaps they're a little bit afraid of silence in the classroom so yeah. they fill it up with extra you know talking time or you know they hand out the worksheets and then talk because and they think they're doing you know it comes from a great place because they're trying to clarify or add extra useful information. But what they're actually doing is distracting the learners from processing the, the information in the first place. And the last two are very similar. It's called, uh, again, fancy names, but they, they call them spatial contiguity and temporal contiguity, which really just means link things that are important together, both in space and time. So if you have, if you're labeling a diagram with the key information, put it on the diagram, not two pages later, Um, if you have a key example about a grammar point, put them together, don't explain the grammar point and then give an example five pages later. And the same for the fifth point to do it, uh, to link them in time. So present key information at the same time. So if you are introducing a certain point, give an example straight away. Don't make the students wait for it um, if, if what you're going to tell them is going to highlight and improve their understanding.
0: So with these five things, coherence, signaling, redundancy, spatial and temporal principles that Richard Myers Mm -hmm. uh, mentions uh, when talking about cognitive overload. And one thing that came to mind is this whole new environment that a lot of teachers are working in, this online teaching environment. For signaling, you mentioned the importance of highlighting important information to your learners with gestures or facial expression, which can be really difficult to do, I find, when working in an online environment, when screens may be, shrank down to allow greater space for materials if that's the kind of uh, classroom that you're working with do you have any suggestions for each of these five particularly with the online environment in mind
1: sure well i think actually all of these can work together really well so i think if you take a step further back and make sure that you're you know looking at the early print, like extraneous cognitive load for example and really reducing down your materials to what's necessary then you have so much more clarity because there's very limited space on a, on a laptop screen and you know some students might be logging in with their phone or with a tablet that has very limited screen size so if you really think about that um you can definitely slow things down you can high with reduced information on the screen you have more uh, abilities to highlight things so really make sure that you pause when necessary. I think everyone took a lot of time to adapt to the fact that when we're no longer in the classroom anymore this year and we rely so much on facial gestures, body language, at least I know I do. So mm-hmm, to adapt to you know, an online environment does take a lot. So you know, make sure, you, know, you suggest to students they wear headphones so they don't get all the extraneous information from a noisy background environment or from a, a you know, loud family environment kids are watching tv in one room or you yeah, um, dad's mowing the lawn or something <laughs> outside so wear headphones so they can block out and just focus um, they can hear your voice a lot better so they are able to pick up on emphasis pacing and delivery of from your voice and then reduce the amount that they can see and even add in a few extra slides to or yeah, if you're using online slides to really focus and emphasize a certain thing you add space around the key areas so they have time to think
0: yeah i found that um visuals have really helped in my teaching and actually i've used more visuals in my teaching online than what i would use face to face because like you say i I need to space it out so instead of cramming too much onto one slide which would be very overwhelming like you say if a learner is on a tablet or a phone device i've divided
1: it over maybe three or
0: five slides so that i can introduce it step by step
1: Yes, definitely. At the first, when I was doing that, I kind of thought to myself, oh my goodness, my, my slides have like tripled in, in yes. number, I, I got, I got, what on earth have I done? But then you go back and look and because you're breaking things down into step by step, rather than presenting too much, it's actually a good thing. I'd rather have too many or more, a high number of slides with, you know, step by step information than throwing too much at once just to artificially reduce the number.
0: Lovely. Dave, do you, do you have any other tips that you'd like to add um, the um,
1: teachers? I think just one, actually, which is oh, I've often found when training about cognitive load theory that teachers sometimes go to the opposite extreme and try and make things too simple. <laughs> so yeah. you know, they sort of vastly reduce their slides to like one ambiguous stick figure. <laughs> <for example. laughs> and you can see the, the students in the class kind of looking sideways and going, oh, what's, what on earth is that? So While it's great to try and reduce unnecessary extra information and simplify it um, to match the student's level, try not to go to extremes and make things so simple that it affects clarity. Um, It goes with your language as well. You know, I've seen teachers, you know, try to reduce their language and actually come out with, you know, grammatically incorrect language that mimics their students because they know their students will then understand. So try not to go too far, but try and get that sweet spot in the middle.
0: Thank you so much, Dave, for giving up your time to talk about cognitive load. It's been really helpful, really insightful today. Um, Those books that you mentioned, could you share with us uh, the one by John Sweller and the one by Richard Meyer, in case our listeners want to do some further research?
1: Sure. The one by John Sweller is called Cognitive Load During Problem Solving. Um, Although that was a paper in Cognitive Science uh, in in the 80s. I think he wrote a book with a couple of other people called Cognitive Load Theory, in 2011 by John Sweller and a couple of others for Richard Meyer that I think his, those five principles came from a paper he wrote in 2002 I can't remember the title off the top of my head but it is Richard E. Meyer um, 2002 paper on cognitive load
0: that's brilliant our listeners can google no it's fine our listeners can google google that and find out more and of course if you want to find out more about cognitive load theory and follow dave and the work he does then he has a blog that's out called what is cognitive load theory which ties in very nicely with today's podcast and the link will be on the website you can also follow dave's work on barefoot teacher.com, where there are lots of resources blog posts and inspiring ideas that you can use in your classes and share with your teaching teams there's also a newsletter as well dave right
1: yes every wednesday i send out an email called one to one wednesday which has one quote about teaching from a famous educator two thoughts from me and one question to prompt your thinking
0: brilliant and listeners can sign up via your web- website right absolutely Brilliant. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great talking to you.
1: Oh, it's been wonderful. Thanks for having me, Laura. And yeah, thank you very much.
0: Finally, if you have a question that you would like us to answer, then you can send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or the website, tsolpop.com.